Hello and welcome to another edition of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is your host, John Jantz, and my guest today is Steve Denny. He is a competitive strategy and marketing consultant and is the author of a book we're going to talk about today called Killing Giants, 10 Strategies to Topple the Goliath in Your Industry. So welcome, Steve. John, how are you? I am just great. Now, you know, everyone cheers for David. Uh, it seems mm-hmm. like, uh, versus Goliath. So I, I'm sure you, uh, particularly in the small business world that we're talking about, us Davids, uh, you've got some people's uh, attention. But uh, tell me why uh, Tell me why you wrote this book or, or, or why you think, I always like to get the baseline, why you think small business owners uh, that, that make up a, a big deal of my audience uh, ought, to, ought to be thinking about uh, Goliath this way. Well, it's certainly uh, a timely story. Um, I think for the vast majority of us, uh, this is uh, these are some of the worst economic times we've lived through yeah. in our lifetimes, and uh, this idea of doing more with less has always been a little bit of a universal story when you're working in a small business. I've worked in a small business. I've also worked in Goliath, so I, I sort of understand both sides of that of that reality. Um, that yeah. being said, as you said, we all cheer for David. We all cheer for the upstart. Every every society in the world tells this story in one way, shape, or form. So, uh, you know, the reason that I felt this book was important to get down is that very often uh, we, we, we'll come across uh, stories or come across advice, and I put advice in, in, in uh, quotes because advice is very often uh, somewhat uh, specific to time and place and doesn't always translate well. But what are we supposed to do as business owners when we're faced with competition that always seems to have more people, mm-hmm. more money, and more resources than we do. And how are we supposed to play the hand we've been dealt? So to me, you know, approaching this really fertile subject with a very tactical, boots-on-the-ground uh, sensibility, I thought was important to get on paper. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about, you know, anytime somebody has in the in the subtitle 10 strategies, you know, we'll, we'll explore a few of those. But uh, uh, I would say that, and I think maybe I, this might have been a direct quote from you, that, that you'd sum the book up, uh, case studies and examples and all, as uh, identifying uh, competitors' vulnerabilities and exploiting the hell out of them. Um, yeah. So, so if that's true, you know, what are what are some of the ways to to identify some of these vulnerabilities? I, I mean, I think I think some are some of them are obvious. In fact, I uh, give a presentation every now and then for chambers and whatnot called the the ten natural advantages of small business, and mm-hmm. and, and I think. You know, you you hit on some of those. Obviously, yep. you know where where smallness is actually and flexibility, and um, you know are are actually advantages. You know, when, against the bigger player here. But uh, so so, how do you find some of the 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 sort of common vulnerabilities? Well, we can start with with one of those vulnerabilities, which I think anytime you're you're talking about how smaller companies uh, compete effectively against larger ones, the default goes to speed. Right. The default goes to nimbleness, but you know I find that speed as an idea doesn't necessarily scale. A lot of people think, okay, we can compete on speed, and that means we're just going to hustle faster. Yeah. And when we do that, we start cutting corners, and mistakes start to happen. I, I found that in the research that I did, and, and again, this was one of those subjects that I thought was going to be a simple one to get into, and the more conversations I had, the more interesting the conversation became. Um, It's not just a question of hustling faster. I found that companies that have instilled speed cultures don't just make decisions 
faster. They typically make them better. And I found that a little bit counterintuitive when I started, but it, as the idea matured, I really began to embrace it. Companies that instill speed cultures, that really sort of bring a facts-not-feelings approach to the table, um, have, have been able to eliminate the fat in the decision-making process. Right. I spoke to Scott Wilder, who at the time was the, the uh, general manager of communities in Intuit, Mm-hmm. And know, we had this, yeah. I mean, we had this great conversation about ending the internal debate. We've all been in that meeting <laughs> where someone someone needs to express the opinion, and it just kind of goes on and on, and you know. And and what he described, and I've been in those cultures myself, and they're very empowering. Is you come into those discussions with facts, with evidence. It may not be perfect, but if everyone in your company or everyone on your team it really embraces that idea and said when we get together to make a decision we're all going to have our evidence in hand we're going to start with our set of facts it tends to eliminate so much that they can get to a point where you can make a really educated you know decision and then quickly move on i spoke to mike cassidy who's a many times serial startup entrepreneur here in silicon valley who talked about how he's been able to do this several times. I gave two uh, examples in the book of companies that he's founded and launched, one of which was Direct Hit, a search engine. Uh, the other one was called Xfire, which was a, uh, a messaging platform for online gaming. And in each case, he talked about this exact same point of anytime we get together as a company, we're going to hash it out, we're going to yell and scream, we're going to have our facts, we're going to vigorously debate things, but then we're going to close, we're going to make a decision, and we're all going to get behind it, and we're going to execute. He said, as a wonderful quote, there's no room on a high-performing team for I told you so. Yeah. Well, you know, in, fi- in fact, as I listen to you talk about <coughs> taking a strategic approach and making better decisions, I think a lot of people... Uh, you know, in, in, I mean, one of the other defaults you haven't mentioned yet is, you know, a lot of times a small company will say, well, we'll just be cheaper than uh, the, the competition. And I, and I think to some degree, making these, you know, attacking these vulnerabilities, so to speak, um, can actually allow yourself to get exploited, <laughs> you know, as yeah, opposed to the other way around if you're not uh, thinking about them in, in, in this manner, I think. No question. You know, the, the whole idea of pricing mm-hmm. is is often one that can get people in trouble because I, I think smaller businesses do tend to think, well, we yeah, can just we don't have the overhead, right? Yeah, yeah, we can undercut them, uh, or we can, as you said, we don't have the overhead, therefore we can do this. Yeah. Um, I found a, a number of of good examples, and I think one of them that I point to for those small businesses that sell through channels. Um, Bob Striano, the CEO of Cozy Shack, a little dessert company up in upstate New York, discusses the use of return on inventory investment. And return on inventory investment essentially is inventory turns times times markup. It's the the return, the financial return, that your retailer is going to receive on every one dollar they invest in inventory of your product. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, now we're taking uh, we're taking a very analytical approach to what can often be an emotional decision. Sure. No one ever got fired for buying IBM, or you know, right. the big brand is a comfortable decision for the retailer to buy, mm-hmm. knowing that there's brand strength behind it. And those are all good things. Let's give giants their due for a minute. 
But on the other side of the coin, there is a financial argument to be made that it's not always a case of cutting the price. Sometimes it's a, it's, it's a very clean case of saying, how do you, my business partner, my indirect channel, make more money on the limited resources, the open-to-buy dollars that you have? And that is very smart. I've been on the receiving end of that, actually, when I worked with Bob. And uh, I had a chance to work with him when he was running the division I was in in Sony. Mm. Tiny little, nimble, $86 yeah. billion dollar startup we were working with. And it does, in fact, work. And you do open eyes when you can approach an indirect channel with a smart pricing strategy, when you really understand how quickly your inventory is turning versus competition. On the other side of the coin, you know, I also spoke to people like uh, Scott Griffith at Zipcar. Yeah. Here's a company that's taken pricing and flipped it on its head. Mm. It's saying, we're not just going to price it cheaper. We're going to change the very definition of what we're selling. Yeah, I was going to say, they didn't take on a giant. They took on the industry. They took on an entire <laughs> entrenched industry. Yeah. And, I, and I think a company that can look at an industry, an established industry like rental cars, yeah. and say, I'm going to completely reimagine what we're doing here. I'm going to sell it in a different way. Right. It's no longer a, uh, a rental. It's a subscription. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how is it that those big companies didn't think of this first? Well, they didn't have to. Well, it's because they, they, were, they were too busy abusing their customers. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, that's exactly. one of my pet too peeves. Busy, <laughs> too, too busy uh, uh, providing such a wonderful customer experience <laughs> for those poor people that had to use them. Yeah. And as a result, you know, it, it's often been said that people, uh, executives uh, uh, often fail in new jobs because they're, uh, they spend their time fighting the last war. Yes. And I think this holds very true for industries as well. Um, I'm sure none of the companies in the rental car industry thought they were doing the wrong thing. I thought they all figured they were on top of their game, and the zip car thing, you know, that's in the U.K., that's not for us. Yeah. And by the time it caught some momentum, it was too late. They were behind the ball. And the only thing I can do to explain it is some sort of collusion or something because the, <laughs> the opportunity was so obvious. Um, you, you know, I want to I want to finish or circle back actually to that pricing mm-hmm. issue because actually what I have found with some of these uh, um, Davids that you've described is uh, because they discovered a more elegant way to do something or to address an entire issue or a frustration, they 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 end up oftentimes actually charging premium pricing. Mm-hmm. Which I, I think is is you know a, a way better place to be than than just trying to be the guy that can come in and undercut. I would tend to agree, and I think those companies that are smaller and this is a uh, an interesting sideline here. I had an interesting discussion with Jim Cook, founder of the Boston Beer Company, and kind of the ancestral. Uh, father of the craft beer movement. I think many would give him credit for that. And I asked him, uh, you know, this point, couldn't a major brewery, an Anheuser-Busch, someone like that, just wake up one morning and say, you know what, I'm tired of reading about this little competitor of mine. Uh, I want to just, I want to end it right now. I just want to stomp on them. And I said, couldn't they just do what you do if they put their minds to it? And he said, well, yes, but no. Could they do it? I suppose they could. They've tried. But could McDonald's make filet mignon? The answer is, yeah, they could, but it's not the business they're in. If a big company were to try to do what so many small companies like this do every day, it would be a 12-month project for an associate brand manager. And for me, this is my life's work. And in that statement is a big lesson, because it is a question of focus. 
and it is a question of the time that a small business is able and the focus a small business is able to bring to a local very specific business that a big company simply doesn't do. Their reward structures are different. Yeah. People well, are, are challenged in different ways. Well, and, and quite frankly, sometimes going off and doing what could actually open up a market and be an interesting thing to do, if it doesn't uh, return shareholder uh, uh, return yeah. that's expected, then, you know, it's a loss. So, so yeah. that, that, that makes the, sort of the fear of that stigma, I, think, I suppose, makes it hard to experiment too. So, so let's jump into a couple of the uh, the strategies. You already mentioned speed, but uh, I'll throw them out and just kind of maybe if you could kind of give me an example, because uh, I know the book is just you know riddled with <laughs> with great examples. So, so my favorite, of course, uh, just because it's so evocative, is uh, eat the bug. Yeah, eat the bug. Uh, do the unthinkable. All right. Do what is taboo for a large company to do. Um, in that chapter, I think. One of my favorite—they're uh, all favorites. I'm sorry, you know, I'm, I, I, I don't—I I can't pick one of the others, but because I'm very often walking around wearing them, yeah. uh, I love to talk about Vibram and their five fingers yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Here's just—if uh, if your listeners aren't familiar with, it, please just go go look at it on the web because it's a—it's an interesting product. This is a shoe, a minimalist design, athletic shoe. Uh, that has sort of five fingers for your toes. You've probably seen them around. Oh, sure, some, sure. Yeah. Seen them around. Yeah, somewhere. pretty much. Uh, they've, they've caught on so much with the running community that pretty much any running store's carrying them now. It's you know the barefoot running phenomenon and all the ergonomic uh, health benefits to it. But the interesting backstory here is that you know this is a shoe sole company. This is a shop, right. the company that sells OEM. Souls to, yeah, my, my, my hiking boots have yeah. vibrant soles, right? So, so here's the company, and they're wondering, how do they escape increasing commoditization? How many different ways can you stamp a pattern on rubber? Yeah. You know, I mean, come on. I mean, yeah. there's certain constraints to their business in the, you know, at, that, at that level. So, and along comes this prototype. And they fully embrace it. Uh, Marco Bramani, their chairman in Milan, you know, hooks them up with this designer, and they hire the guy on board. And here's this product they don't quite know what to do with, but they know if it's innovative and it's a shoe sole, this is the perfect combination, the perfect storm for a company like that. And they go and they present it to all of their clients. And their clients, as Tony Post, the CEO of the company, so eloquently put it, did what big companies do. They saw all the problems and all the reasons why it would be a risky decision. Mm -hmm. And so they all passed. And it gave Vibram the green light to launch it themselves. <laughs> Without competing. And, yeah. and it would not compete. the guy, we offered it to you, yeah. and you, you passed. And now, this is the fastest growing shoe in the business now. Yeah. And, I, you know, I own a pair. I, I'm biased. I like the company. I like the people. But, I mean, I think the enduring lesson here is it is a wonderful example of doing something taboo because none of the big brands could see themselves launching a product that was this outlandish. They had this image. They had to, and, and not for nothing. Let's let, let's hit the nail on the head. They've spent thirty to forty years teaching us that athletic shoes are foot-mounted shock absorbers. Right. And if they all of a sudden turn around and embrace something that is minimalist and barefoot, yeah. what are they saying? Yeah. They're saying we've been lying to you. Yeah. All, all that, these years. All those heel stabilizers go out the out the window, don't they? It, they couldn't yeah. do it. This it's a great a great great book. I'm sure you've probably familiar with called Born to Run. Uh, that, that certainly takes the, the running uh, shoe industry to task a bit. 
This halftime break is brought to you by Constant Contact. Constant Contact helps small businesses and nonprofits build great customer relationships with email marketing, event marketing, and online surveys. Visit them today at constantcontact.com and sign up for your free 60-day trial. Yeah, I mean, I think this whole idea of doing the unthinkable is, you know, a lot of times it comes down to really a deep understanding of who your competitors are and what they have built into their assumptions. Yeah. How do they make money? And once you can do something that they can't bring themselves to do, you've got some uncontested space to play with. You well, so, so, you know, one of the things as I read the book, um, and, and I think it's you naturally focused on the Davids, but, I mean, I'm, I'm, I did find myself occasionally saying, you know, was David so smart or was, you know, Goliath so stupid? <laughs> you know, <laughs> because sometimes, you know, the, the opportunities sort of fall in people's laps because, huh. you know, the other guy wouldn't take it. Yep. Um, and I wonder if it's if it's just a combination or if, if, or if they're, you know, if I'm sitting out there thinking, gosh, you know, everybody in my industry still does X. I mean, are there still yep. opportunities there for, for just about everybody? You know what? Those those observations are best made in the rearview mirror, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> uh, we can we we can talk about a zip car and say, well, how did they not see? Yeah. No one saw it. Everyone yeah. thought they were doing fine. You know, it's interesting. You know, talk for a moment about Goliaths and give give the giants their due. You don't get to be a giant without being very successful. Right. I mean, that's that's a natural outcome of being <laughs> well, successful. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were. Nobody starts out as a big company, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, no. they were all Davids, right? <laughs> That's correct, and, yeah. and I think it's important to remember that you know as as companies progress and as they're successful, um, it's 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 natural that they really do believe in their heart of hearts, and this is what culture is. They believe that they're doing things right. Look at um, look at this uh, Watson, IBM's Watson, the thinking computer that mm-hmm. wins Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, we can look back at that and say that those two Jeopardy champions, um, Ritter and uh, I'm going to forget the other guy's name, Jennings, Ken Jennings and uh, Rudder, I think it was. Here's two guys who went into that match, one of whom had won the game 33 times, the other had won millions of dollars. Could they have possibly conceived in their wildest nightmares in this case that they could be playing the game wrong? that their strategy was wrong. Yeah. I read this fascinating piece by uh, a guy named Greg Jennings, and he was one of the uh, the guys who went to Watson Research Park and played uh, Watson before the big televised event. He'd won the game three times. Mm-hmm. So no slouch. You know, the guy was obviously very skilled at the game, but he wasn't so completely convinced of his omnipotence and, and unbeatability his invincibility, that he couldn't be flexible in his thinking. And he instantly saw, as he began to compete against the computer, what the computer was doing. And instead of starting off at the low dollar volumes and and sort of warming up, Watson instantly went for the biggest dollar values on the board and just hoovered them all up instantly, right or wrong. And he said, the computer is playing this the way a non-human would. And he instantly shifted gears it was very nerve-wracking for him, as he explained. But he mimicked the computer and beat it its own game three times in a row. He was instantly shown the door. 
given a check for his time and <laughs> banished from ever, you know, uh, you know, setting foot back on their property. Watson goes on and defeats the champions three times in a row. They couldn't possibly believe that they were doing things wrong. And that's the way giants think. Giants truly believe in their heart that they can't possibly be doing things wrong because they have this culture that's always worked this way. And now you begin to understand why someone can come in from the cold, from an outsider's perspective. Look at Eric Ryan and Method, Mm -hmm. a company that has really reimagined detergent and brought sensibilities from health and beauty aids and other different kinds of products and brought it to an industry dominated by chemical smells and big red bottles. You know, Eric Eric says, uh, you know, we positioned this as Avita for the home and has carved out a, a, a sizable several hundred million dollar business now in an industry that he really shouldn't be able to compete in. I think that's a wonderful lesson for anyone in a small business right now. That very often, giants really aren't the biggest problem you're going to face. Well, you, you, you know, it's interesting, though. Um, you could make a case for saying that, that part of P&G's problem is they had backed themselves into a corner. Um, mm-hmm. You know, who's going to believe that the company that, that makes uh, Clorox, you know, is going to make a green product? It's not stopping them from trying, is it? <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying? I, I think that that's uh, a big part of their problem is the folks that are truly concerned about that don't believe them, don't trust them. Well, yeah. I mean, I think Method has done a lot of things right yep. and, and, and bringing a design sensibility as well as being sort of an early standard bearer for yeah, yeah. green formulation. That being said, sure, Clorox... Big industrial chemical company that produces. I mean, when you think of Clorox, what do you think of? Right. Bleach. Yes. You know, and now they're trying to recast themselves as a green company, and you know, give their marketing people credit. A lot of people <laughs> have bought the argument. That right. being said, yeah, yeah. I don't think you know. I, I, if I, if Eric was on the line, he would say, absolutely, Clorox is a concern to me. All everyone's a concern to me, as he should. Yeah. But that being said, it is an argument. It's awfully hard for Clorox to convincingly yeah, win. Yeah. So I think that's sometimes where where you know those opportunities uh, you know are created too. The giant just can't go there, um, yep. or not very effectively because of the baggage that they're <laughs> trying to take with them. Let's end up on one that I, I have to admit um, I struggle with a little bit because it's it's so counterintuitive. I think for the small business, and that's the all all the wood behind arrows. Yeah. So the, so the idea of you know really being <clears throat> one dimensional, which again I I firmly believe sort of narrowing is the way that you compete but it's you know it gets tough in a lot of for a lot lot of people's minds because they're saying well what about this opportunity and what about that opportunity yeah all the wood behind the arrows plural um as you can probably guess that chapter began life called all the wood behind the arrow Mm. and i truly went down the path i did my best to convince the people i was interviewing that i was right and they were wrong (laughs) Um, I fortunately caught myself and let them tell me the story instead of the other way around. Um, Eric was actually, uh, the method story was the first first interview in that chapter. And as I asked Eric time and time again, uh, and since we've become friends and we've stayed in touch, but, you know, that first conversation, I kept trying to steer him back to, you know, now why was it that you, you know, brought Kareem Rashid, international uh, industrial design icon in to design the bottle, and why? How did you come up with this idea of focusing your company's efforts on this 
design element. Who cares what soap looks like on the counter? Mm-hmm. He kept gently redirecting me back, saying, yeah, that's very important, but there's more to it than that. I talked to Jeff Ross, founder of 42 Below Vodka, down in New Zealand, a country known for vodka, I'm sure you'll agree. <laughs> and, you know, again, here's an interesting case of multiple things of, of a very high premium brand. Did the world really need another premium vodka? There's, there's a hundred of them out there. And yet, at the same time, extremely irreverent brand image and very provocative advertising to the point where, as I mentioned in Killing Giants, there were a number of boycotts against this product. Occasionally, he stepped over a lot of different lines in a lot of different directions. But I think, to his credit, uh, he didn't instantly back up and say, well, I'm terribly sorry. He said, this is who we are. And the more I gathered around this subject, the more it became very clear to me that being one-dimensional is very dangerous. Brands that are one-dimensional are easy for a giant to copy. Look at Clorox. Can Clorox launch Greenworks? Yeah, they can. They did. And had Method been simply a sustainably formulated detergent line, Clorox has got more distribution muscle. They simply would have won. Um, I spoke to Sergio Zeman. I'm sure you know, uh, end of advertising as we know it, former Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. marketing officer of Coca-Cola. And as I was talking to him about some other things, he brought up Fruitopia, a perfect Me Too product that was launched, as he described it, to complete people. And as he launched it, the press jumped all over him and said, come on, all you're doing is copying Snapple. He said, yeah, I am copying Snapple. There's no originality here whatsoever. But I've got a significantly superior distribution system. And that's why I'm going to do it, and I'm going to drown them in the market. And within about 12 months, Snapple was sold. Okay, we can look at some different examples of what I would call interestingness, brand tension. And we can, I, I think it's, it's, it's a powerful case to be built here that says that smaller companies that are competing against giants need to have more than a single attribute to survive in the long run. And very often, Eric said this very brilliantly, I thought, Eric Ryan of Method, saying we could not have been successful if we had launched a single attribute brand. The big guys would have figured us out. And I think that's a a keystone quote to that particular chapter. Well, I think it's very true. I mean, you even look at some of just maybe more recent examples, a lot of these third-party apps that have, have been created around you know, things like Twitter. And then all of a sudden Twitter woke up, you know, the giant woke up and said, oh, yep. you know what, we we could do that. <laughs> we'll have our own app. Um, and, yep. and some of those companies are, are now, you know, non-existent, uh, um, yep. you know, or at least as we know them. So well, the good news, though, uh, I think for, you know, any of those uh, uh, startups or small businesses out there that are facing it is, you know, there's never been a there's never been a you know a better opportunity i think given the you know the the market and the you know what's going on in, online and how easy it is to now create global distribution and and yeah. start a company uh, pretty much overnight on a shoestring that's true you know we're we're living in a time right now where we've got so many more tools yeah. than we would have had 10 years ago and but i think there's a flip side to this and that is that consumers 
too, have those tools. Right. And their tastes have not only matured, but they've become a little bit, the bar's been raised a little bit. They've become a little bit more demanding of yeah. the brands that they give their loyalty to. And that gives opportunity, and that opens the door. It's a, it's a clear invitation for brands to show that personality and to bring more than just that obvious one functional dimension. What is that primary benefit that we do? We can communicate our cultural values. Right. We can talk about those other things that make us truly interesting and unique. So I think the tools have evolved as the consumers have evolved, and it gives us this opportunity to present ideas like I describe in all the wood behind the arrows to the fore. And that's a wonderful, uh, I think, opportunity for a smaller business to really compete on, on equal footing now with giants that they face. Absolutely. So, Steve, um, we have run the course of our time. I'm talking to Steve Denny, the author of Killing Giants. And uh, before we wrap up, uh, I know that you have a, a site uh, just uh, f or at least a section on your site, I guess, just for the book. And, and you want to tell people maybe uh, where they can find out a little more? Sure. Uh, you can certainly find out more about the book about Killing Giants on my website, which is Stephen Denny. Dot com. You can also, of course, go to KillingGiants.com. And the book is the book's available everywhere. Absolutely. Great read. And I, I, I'm, I'm really uh, sort of envious of some of the companies you got to spend some time with just because they, uh, they are some of my favorite companies as well. So, Steve, thanks so much. And uh, I'm sure we'll run, at, run into you out there on the road again. Excellent, John. Right, thanks so thanks, much. Steve. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.